Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. It is March, and I don't know about you, but January January seemed to move at its normal pace, but February was like gone in a blink, and now we're, we're here. We're just a couple of weeks away from the start of spring. This Sunday, the clocks move forward an hour, and the thing I'm most excited about this month is next week. I, along with my good friend Kent Dobson, will lead another pilgrimage to Israel and Palestine. And I am particularly excited about this one because I, uh, my daughter's coming with me on this trip, and I just cannot wait to experience this with her. Now, I mentioned the pilgrimage here at the top because I'm asked all the time, when is the next pilgrimage? And that will be spring of 2024. And I know that seems like a long way off, but there were several people who a couple of years ago planned ahead for this pilgrimage and they were able to save and make it work. So if you have any interest in joining us in 2024, send me an email. It's just michael at michael-hidalgo.com and I'm going to put your name on a list. Now, this does not mean you're committed to anything. All it does is it puts you in the front of the line for the next pilgrimage. And uh, if you want to join us, you will be the first to know. Um, Also, I just checked before I hit record, there is only one spot left for the Blueprint Retreat. Scholarships are still available if needed. You can DM me on Instagram or send me an email. Um, The code PODCAST10 will get you, as a listener of the podcast, 10% off registration. This is the only retreat I'm doing in Colorado this year. Just a couple of weeks ago, um, I did one in the mountains of North Carolina, and it was a great time with uh, the church on Morgan based out of Raleigh, and it really, really made me excited for the next uh, retreat coming up. The dates are Friday, April 22nd through Sunday, April 24, and we would love to have you join us. One more thing before we jump into today's episode. If you enjoy this podcast, if you find it helpful, Um, Can I ask you to consider giving it a rating or a review or maybe even consider sharing it with others or sharing it on your social media channels? I would really deeply appreciate that. And uh, for those of you who have done that, thank you. I really am grateful and it helps more than you know. But we are not here today to talk about pilgrimages or emails or retreats or reviews. (laughs) We're here today to talk about memory. Because more often than not, we forget or maybe we push the memory out of our minds or we remember in a way that keeps what we believe are the bad parts of our story um, out. It leaves out those parts of our past that we don't want to reckon with. And this is not something we always do purposely or consciously, but it may be important for us to consider how we do or do not remember. And I would suggest that if we learn to remember well, it can serve us, it can serve others, and it can serve our world well. And it can lead to greater health. A few weeks ago, I actually revisited a memory. Uh, My wife and I were with some friends, and one of them asked the question, uh, how each of us met and married. And we each just took turns sharing our stories. And it was fascinating to listen and see that while each person agreed on the events of their relationship, all of us, my wife and me included, remembered things and details and words differently. One example is my my wife and I talked about the first time we kissed. Uh, 
Now, my wife and I met in high school at the age of 16. And when we met, she had a boyfriend and I had a girlfriend. And there was all sorts of teenage flirting and fun that lasted a few months. Eventually, it led to the breaking up of our former loves. And eventually, we kissed for the first time. And to this day, she would say that I kissed her. But I would say she kissed me. And every time we tell this story, we insist it was the other And we explain our points and why our individual version of events makes the most sense. And we laugh about the whole thing. And every time we tell the story, what's interesting is those listening, they begin to get into the story too. And it's like they pick a side and they begin explaining why they think one person was the probably the instigator of that first kiss. I mean, even now, as you listen, you may have an opinion just listening to me talk about it. And if you do have an opinion, and that opinion is in agreement with my wife, I have to tell you that you're dead wrong. But here's my question. Why do we do this? Why do we tell stories and retell stories? I mean, did someone ever sit down with you and say, when you were young, hey, there's something you need to do. You need to remember certain events in your life, and you need to craft a narrative around it. And then you need to be willing to tell that story to other people. Of course not. I mean, I've heard it said that we as humans are just natural born storytelling creatures. And I agree, but why? Why is that? Well, one reason is stories are connected to our memories and are the primary way we remember things that have unfolded in our lives. And we tell and retell stories to keep the memories fresh, to keep them alive. And telling and retelling our stories, it's a mechanism for memory. It's a mechanism for remembering. Because when we tell a story, it's like we are living it all over again with the emotion, the tension, the laughter, the tears. And this does something to us. It reinforces things in us and it changes us actually at the physiological level level, because memories change the brain. Now, we often think of memories being stored in a part of our brain as if like our brain is a computer with a hard drive, almost like somehow you could cut your head open and find the place in the brain where memories are stored. But this is actually not the case. Psychologist Robert Epstein writes this with regard to memory. He says, misleading headlines notwithstanding, no one really has the slightest idea how the brain changes after we have learned to sing a song or recite a poem. But neither the song or the poem has been stored in the brain. The brain has simply changed in an orderly way that now allows us to sing the song or recite the poem under certain conditions. And When it comes to memories, when we tell stories, what happens is it feels like we're living it all over again, and the memories are reinforced, which makes the neural connections in our brain stronger. Now, what's interesting about this, well, there's I guess there's a lot interesting about this, but one of the things I find interesting about this is that in the Hebrew scriptures, God invites the people of Israel to retell their story as a nation over and over again. I have a friend named Boaz who is Jewish, and he once said to me, 
To be a Jew is never to forget. To be a Jew is to never forget. Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Jewish tradition, but built into their tradition is a practice of remembering. The Hebrew word for remember is zakar. And zakar occurs more than any other verb in the first five books of the Bible called Torah. It's the most common command given to the people of Israel. You see it over and over. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it sacred. Remember you were slaves in Egypt. Remember the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Over and over and over. Remember, remember, remember. And what's interesting is how they remember. Because for as much as this word is used and as often as it is commanded, there's another word in their language, in in our language, for which there's no Hebrew equivalent. It's the word history. Now you would think if remembering is central to a tradition and if memory is connected to the past, then to remember their past, there would be some sort of word for history, but in the Hebrew language, there's no word for history. Rabbi Mendel Kalimson wrote about this and here's what he said. There is no word for history in the Hebrew language. The absence of a word as central to any nation as history is striking. It's probably because there's no such thing as history in Judaism. Zakar, to remember, features prominently in the biblical language and thought. It goes far beyond semantics, cutting straight to the core of Judaism's perception of the past. Memory, he writes, memory is a part of me and history a part from me. Without me, there is no memory. Put differently, history is made up of objective facts in memory of subjective experience. As you might have guessed, Judaism is less interested in dry facts than in breathing experiences. It is for this reason that much of the Jewish tradition and ritual draws on reenactment. We don't just commemorate, he says, we remember. And we don't just recount someone else's story, we relive our own. And so the question is, well, how do they do this? Well, maybe you've been to a Seder meal, the Passover meal, and you know exactly how this is done. Because if you've ever joined with Jewish friends for a Passover meal, it's a retelling or a reenactment of the people of Israel being liberated from slavery in Egypt. Or, or there's the other, another Hebrew feast, which is the Feast of Sukkot, or the Festival of Booths or Tents, and it's people living in temporary shelters to this day as a way of remembering the time spent in the wilderness after they were liberated from slavery in Egypt. There's the Festival of Purim, which is a retelling of the story of Esther and King Xerxes and Mordecai and Haman. What are they doing with all of these festivals, which can also, by the way, be translated rehearsal, to rehearse, to redo something? Well, they're retelling the story. They're remembering. And by retelling these stories, they keep the memories alive. And in doing that, well, they relive the story. They relive the memory. So you may at this point be wondering, okay, why why do we have all this talk about memory and story? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. I point all this out because of something I have seen uh, in a lot of people, including myself, with regard to memory. And specifically, 
how we remember bits and pieces of our lives. We often tend to recall things in a positive light when it comes to our own stories, don't we? I mean, think about the last time you had a conflict with someone. It could be a coworker, a partner, a friend, a spouse. Have you ever noticed that in the aftermath, before things have really calmed down, that we instantly begin telling ourselves a story, we're reliving the conflict, we're reliving the memory, and we do so in such a way where they are terrible and we are noble. We retell the story and we say they were wrong about this and this and this, and they said or did that and that and that. And as for ourselves, well, I mean, the points we were making were clearly rational and articulate and made complete sense, just that they weren't listening. And above all that, I mean, we remained calm and we listened well and we totally understood exactly what they were saying. If they would only have responded the way we did, well, there would never have been a conflict in the first place. And yes, I'm exaggerating this hypothetical example to make a point. The point being, we often don't remember well, which is to say, we don't tell ourselves the most truthful stories. Frederick Nietzsche wrote with regard to this way of remembering. He said, I have done that, says my memory. I cannot have done that, says my pride, and remains impossible to persuade. And eventually, memory yields to our pride. You see, he's pointing out, we don't want to remember rightly because it can be too much for our, our ego or our pride. So we tell a different story, one that can flatter us, one that causes us to come out smelling like roses. But the problem is the story is not true, which means we are living an experience that never happened. I, I saw this at play several years ago. Uh, I was in a meeting where we were talking about racial equity and there was a person at the table who dominated the conversation. They were really intense, clearly really angry. And what was interesting is this person was white. And the reason they were angry was because they felt there were too many people not doing enough work for racial equity and justice, which of course is true. They went on to talk about how we need to get in people's faces, how we need outrage, how we need to challenge people. And the more this person spoke, like the more intense and animated they became. And at one point they said, we need to get angry in like raised voice. And everyone around the table was tense. And I didn't know how to respond and no one seemed to know what to say. But then one person at the table spoke up and asked a question. They looked at this person who was angry and said, have you always been angry like this about the problem of racism? And the person looked at them for a minute and there was like this pregnant pause and then said, no. And then this other person said, well, why is that? And they went on to talk about how they grew up. They said there was never any talk of race and no one in their context was overtly racist or prejudiced, but there was never really any conversation about systemic racism or the history of the United States or how oppression still exists. And then the other person said, well, you clearly are aware of this now. So what was your process like in becoming aware of the racial injustice that still exists in our country? And so this person, 
Then they talked about how they went off to college, they studied political science, they developed relationships with people who were nothing like the people they grew up around. Uh, After college, they got a job in the political realm, and it helped them see how many things are stacked against people of color. And this led them to read and to learn more. They developed um, relationships with people that led them to witness the horrible realities of racism and injustice. And all of this gave birth to their passion for a more just and equitable society. And when they finished sharing about kind of their journey, they asked the person who was asking the questions like, why are you asking me this? And the other person responded in such a gentle way and said, well, I just wondered if your awareness around racial justice came about because someone got in your face and expressed anger. You see, what happened in that moment is someone invited this person who was angry to tell their story. They invited them, we might say it this way, to remember. They invited them to relive the memories. And in doing so, I witnessed this teachable moment because this person who was deeply angry, they had forgotten where they came from. They had forgotten their memories. They had forgotten there was a season in their life when they were the kind of person they would be angry at today. They had forgotten what brought them to a place of awareness They had forgotten what put a fire in their bones and what led them to be someone who advocated for racial equity. Ultimately, they forgot the journey they were given the benefit of undertaking. Now, maybe you've been in a meeting like this or you've been around people like this or you've seen this kind of thing manifest in yourself and you recognize like there's an air about this kind of way of thinking and talking and living. It's people who fancy themselves as those who get it, those who demand this ideological purity. And people like this are often impatient with others who do not think like them, especially toward those who are from their tribe of origin. And they seem to expect everyone to get in line immediately and get to the place where they are. I've seen this when people talk about their faith, when people talk about their political opinions or about their understanding of the church, it seems they cannot believe others would ever behave or think like that. All the while, they forget they were once in that place too. Now, when I'm in the presence of people like this, I always wonder, well, what was it like for you when you didn't get it? And I constantly go back to that meeting when that individual invited this person who was angry to retell their story, and in doing so, brought them to their memory. One that had the power to make them more compassionate, more inviting, one that reminded them how they were given the grace to take steps, to grow, to stumble forward, to evolve. And I point this out, because if we forget our stories or if we neglect the parts of, uh, that our pride tells us to keep hidden, what can happen is we can become those who deprive others of the journey we were given the grace to undertake. We become those who look back at others with disdain rather than looking at them with grace and compassion and love and tenderness Because when we don't tell the story correctly, we convince ourselves we were never like them. So what can we do? Like, how can we remember? 
I mean, how if our pride interferes with our memory? Let me share um, a few thoughts. And I want to do this by way of a four-part structure. Um, Because when it comes to most anything in life, we're often in one of four stages. Those stages are unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, and unconscious competence. Let me say those again. Unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, and unconscious competence. Now, let's walk through all four of these. First being unconscious incompetence. This is when you don't know that you don't know. You are unaware of all you have to learn. And by the way, this is a great stage because it's rather innocent. I mean, as it's been said many times, ignorance is bliss. Think of it this way. Um, Do you remember when you were old enough to take driver's ed and get a permit? There was this like hysteria for me because I was on the cusp of independence. I imagined driving by myself, windows down, music blaring. I could taste the freedom. Now, the car that was shared between my siblings and me was a manual. It was a stick shift, which some refer to as a millennial theft deterrent. (laughs) Uh, No matter. For me, I didn't care. All I wanted to do was drive. Now, I was unaware of the learning curve that, that was before me when it came to driving out on the open road. I didn't know about the rules and the laws, the awareness, checking my blind spot, turning a corner, four-way stops, traffic, and how to get the car going in first gear. I was unconsciously incompetent. I didn't know what I didn't know. So when it comes to telling your story about where you are now, when was the time that you were unconsciously incompetent? When did you not know that you didn't know? And this can be about any area of your life where you have experienced growth and a sort of awakening. It helps to remember there was a moment when you just did not know. This is the first of four stages, unconscious incompetence. The second then is conscious incompetence. This is the most painful stage. So back to me driving. (laughs) The first time I drove our family car, I I cannot tell you how many times I stalled the car. Um, If you've ever driven a stick, you know that moment where the car like lurches and it almost like bucks and the tires squeal and, and then you try to time the release of the clutch and the gas and it just keeps stalling out. By the time I made it out of our driveway, <laughs> my dad, God bless him, was sitting in the passenger seat and it looked like he needed a stiff drink. And I was just undone and frustrated. My, my dream of freedom was crumbling before my, fa- before my eyes. All the dreams of driving with, with the windows down and the music blaring, they were gone. And I remember on that first voyage <laughs> being at a red light And everything in me was tense and stressed because there were people behind me and I was the first one in line. And the light turned green and I went for it. And the car lurched forward, bucked a few times and stalled about three feet from where I started. And that happened four times. Four times. Starting the car back up, trying to get it into first, lurching, bucking, 
stall four times. The guy behind me honked and then he yelled so loud I could hear him and we both had our windows rolled up. In that moment, I was keenly aware I had so much to learn because my incompetence suddenly became very conscious. So again, when, when did you become aware of your ignorance or your weakness or your bias or whatever it might be? When was the moment that you saw for the first time knowing that once you saw, you could not unsee it? Go back to that time. Recall how it felt. Because typically there's, there's a measure of humiliation, a feeling defeated, a feeling of failure, this feeling like, how did I not know this? And we have all been there. This is stage two, and it can feel like we are there forever. And here's an important detail about this stage. There are many people who do not move beyond stage two because it's really difficult to go through it. So they might choose to say, as it's been said, or they might choose to stay stuck in their ways. Or they may, out of fear, remain where they are and bury the idea or try to forget about it. It would be like if I, after stalling the car out for the 50th time, pulled over on the shoulder, turned the car off, and walked away and decided I will only drive automatic vehicles from now on. And so the question is, if people get stuck in stage two, how do they move beyond it? Well, they move beyond it with the help of someone who's been there and knows how to navigate through it and beyond it. Someone who remembers the humiliation and knows that it takes time and grace and patience and love to move through this stage. And if someone is there badgering them or talking poorly about them or yelling in their face, they will likely remain stuck in stage two. But if there is grace and compassion offered to them, well, then we all move to stage three. And stage three is conscious competence. So for me, this is when I was no longer stalling out four times at a green light, but I was still not 100% comfortable with driving. I had to think about the gas, the clutch, the RPMs, to know when to switch gears, putting the car in neutral and braking when I approached a stop sign or a red light. Everything in me concentrated on what I was doing. Yes, of course, I could do it, but I was fully engaged and fully aware of every single thing I did while driving that stick shift. So again, back to your story. Have you ever felt like this? Where you are all of a sudden aware of a new way of thinking or a new way of doing something? I, I see this in, in many conversations I have with people about faith and belief. It's the moment when they, they learn something new or experience something for the first time or have a deepening connection with God. And, and there's something in them that trusts it, but they are aware this is new. And because of that, there's like a slight uneasiness about the whole thing, almost like there's this voice whispering into the, the, their soul's ear, what if you're wrong? They have a new awareness and are very aware of this new awareness. Now, often in this stage, there's also this like new excitement because you're beyond stage two um, and then you have this new awareness or consciousness and you want to tell everyone what you're learning and experiencing for the first time. Like the first time I didn't stall the car at a green light, it was 
fantastic for my 15-year-old self and I think a huge (laughs) relief for my dad. And so if you've ever met someone who seems really passionate about something that they've just discovered and they can't stop talking about it, they may well be in this conscious competence, stage three of four. Now, eventually we do come to stage four and this is unconscious competence. See, the, the time came for me where I didn't think about driving at all. I just drove and I drove stick shift until about seven or eight years ago. And not only did I not stall anymore, I didn't think about when to shift or what gear I was in or when to put it in neutral to begin braking. It was second nature. I was on autopilot with the windows down and the music blaring and experiencing freedom. But at the start of the whole thing, I never knew all that it would take to get me to this place. So again, consider the things you do or know that feel normal. They're second nature. How did you get to this place? What stages did you go through? What was it like when you didn't know that you didn't know? What was it like when you were aware that you didn't know? What was it like when you were consciously competent? There was a feeling of of excitement, but also a feeling of unease. Last year, I was skiing with my daughter and um, if you're familiar with skiing, kids, when they learn, they teach them the pizza pie, like to basically snow plow. So their tips of the skis are together and the, the tail of the, the, the skis are way out. And eventually you take this pizza pie and you go to French fries, they call it, for the kids who are learning, which is when your skis are together and you're turning. And so my daughter um, last year said to me, like, dad, how do you turn the way I do? Now, I've been skiing since I was five, and so my immediate response was, I don't know, I just turn. And (laughs) real compassionate. Then I demonstrated a turn, and she said, I know you turn, Dad, but how do you do it? And I found myself, like, I stopped on the slope for a second, and I found myself going back to conscious competence. Like, how, how do I turn? Weight shift, edges, fall line, I mean just like walking my body through everything I was doing. And as I began doing this and teaching her, I realized she was in stage two. She all of a sudden realized, hey, my dad does something different than I do. She was aware of what she didn't know and what she didn't know was how to turn like I did on a pair of skis. And what she needed was not me to be saying like, well, I don't know, I just turn. What she needed was me to meet her in stage two, in her conscious incompetence. You see, if, if I forgot or if I was unwilling to rewind, if I just said, I'm going to stay at the level of unconscious competence, I would be no help for her at all. And so I wonder, what if this is how we engaged with memory? What if this is how we remembered? What if we worked through our lives, our stories, our growth, our evolution by walking back to the time when we were unconsciously incompetent and we moved through those four stages? What woke us up? How did we feel? What moved us through? Who came alongside us in our fear, in our frustration? Like what if rather than living in stage four, rolling our eyes at people that we believe are in stage one or two, we remember our journey 
What if we retell our story and we speak fondly of the people who helped us through stage two and we honor the time and the grace and the patience and the love they offered us? Years ago, I was in conversation with someone and they asked me about the way I think and about some of the things I do in my work. And looking back, my answers had an edge to them. Like there was a haughtiness in the way I spoke. There was like this arrogance that, that tinged in my thinking. And the fellow who asked me these questions, he said, you know, you would do well to remember where you came from. You need to learn to walk back and retrace the path that you were led down. Because if you don't do that, you will never be able to. Those words changed me. And and I say that because I was no different than the person who was angry at that meeting years ago. Those words changed me because I began to work my way back to the spaces and places when I was in stage one. And I considered how I felt when I fell into stage two. And by the way, we usually do fall into stage two. It's something like a face plant. (laughs) And I found I was able to name those people who came alongside me in stage two and lovingly walked with me through that stage. I remembered the stage three moments. And it was then I began to view first myself with greater compassion and grace and love and tenderness. And that allowed me to view others with this grace and love and tenderness because I I relived my memory. And that memory is not apart from me. It is a part of me. And the more I'm able to walk through my memories, the more I'm able to walk through those four stages, the more integrated my life becomes, the more integrated my story becomes, because all of these things are still a part of me, even the parts my ego and my pride don't want to remember. Now, keep in mind, We are always at all four stages in different places in our lives. No one, no one is at stage four in every area of their life. And if you're listening and you're thinking, no, I'm totally in stage four in every area of my life, you're actually in stage one. You are unconscious of your incompetence. You are don't know what you don't know. You're unaware of all sorts of things. And stage two is waiting for you. And I point this out, lest we become those who have this belief that we have arrived. Remember, there are always things we are learning, things we have learned, things that are second nature, and there are many things we have yet to learn, things we are not aware that we have yet to learn. And if we can remember this, this will keep us curious, it will keep us open, and it will keep us humble. It will keep us in a place where we can become those who reflect the grace and the love and the time given us. And it allows for everyone to take the journey of growth and healing and wholeness that we all need. And my hope in all of this is that we would become those who learn to tell and retell our stories so that we would be those who remember well. Those who understand our memory is a part of our story, a part of our lives, and that we would do the work of retracing the stages of our story 
so that we can become those who offer grace and love and compassion to others wherever they find themselves on their journey. And that is it for today, my friends. I look forward to being with you again in a couple of weeks. But until that time, as always, much love and peace be with you.